0: Hey, I'm Gina from Madison, Wisconsin. I'm Jennifer from Bethel Park, PA.
1: Hey, I'm Alex from Rochester, New York.
0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently
2: and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did.
1: Just visit maximumfundorg slash donate. Thank you.
3: I'm Jesse Thorne. In baseball, there's the fastball, the curveball, and for a select few...
2: There's the knuckleball. In actuality, you're throwing it with your fingernails, uh, taking off all the spin that you can. One of my guests this
3: week is R.A.
2: Dickey. He's a pitcher for the New York Mets, and he's the only knuckleballer left in the big leagues. You know, I have thrown knuckleballs that you can actually read the writing on the baseball as it comes in. It's It's bullseye. <laughs>
3: This week, Mets pitcher R.A. Dickey talks about fighting his way through 10 years as a marginal professional baseball player before giving himself over to the uncontrollable but devastating knuckleball. Plus, find out why he has a bat named fronting. Yes, that's the name of Beowulf's sword. We travel back to the early 60s on the streets of San Francisco where James P. Coyle and Mal Sharp convince a Navy man to rob a bank for them. All, as they say, in the interests of humor. And I'll tell you about a radio show that's not this one that you really ought to hear. All that and more this week on Bullseye. Let's go. Every week on the show, we check in with one of our favorite culture critics to get some recommendations for things that are worth your time. This week, no different. We're joined by Mark Frauenfelder, one of the founders of boingboing.net, a directory of wonderful things, and the host of the Gweek podcast. Mark, welcome back to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show, as always. Thank you, Jesse. Um, Let's start by talking about the dictionary of modern proverbs. This sounds like a lot of wisdom uh, to pack into just one book. It is a lot of wisdom. Well, it's actually 1,400 proverbs,
1: and they were all selected because the first occurrence of them to be found in print had to be after the year 1900. So they're all 20th and 21st century proverbs. The great thing about it is that the uh, the folks who put this together and compiled the list give you the, the earliest instance, the earliest available instance of the proverb and And talk about where it showed up, and it also includes kind of modern things like anti proverbs and counter proverbs, which make it make it even more fun wait what
3: are anti proverbs and counter proverbs Well,
1: an anti proverb is like an an intentional misapplication of a proverb, so something uh, for example, one would be like "Beauty is only skin." <laughs> Or absence makes the heart go wander. (laughs) Or do unto others before they do unto you. So those kinds of things. And then a a counter proverb would be something that is the exact opposite of a typical proverb. So, for example, one would be, one rotten apple spoils the
3: whole barrel. And that's kind of true if you think about it. So what is your favorite regular traditional proverb that you... Either like a, a hoary old favorite from your past that you loved deeply and were happy to find out about the origins of, or one that you had never heard and, and you read in the book. Uh, well, one of them
1: that I really liked a lot that I hadn't heard before, but it just rings so true, is The More Arguments You Win, The Fewer Friends You Will Have. And that one appeared in a 1945 magazine called the Public Relations Journal, Number one, and it's uh, just—it was a filler item in that in that newsletter. But I think that one
3: it, it is really good, don't you think? It's it applies to the internet particularly. Yeah, for sure. Um, let's talk about this iPhone app called Video Star. Um, tell me what it does.
1: Oh, this is something that my nine-year-old daughter and I just love. It it what you do to to use it is you you pick a song from your iTunes playlist and when the song starts playing the the camera on the iPhone starts recording and so generally it's Jane dancing or doing something funny and then as you're recording you can press these little effects buttons that are on the screen of the phone so you can turn it into this kind of blurry warp look or a black and white look or you can put her inside of a vintage television set there's a good dozen or two Effects that you can do, and there's green screen options, and the end result makes it look like a 1970s PBS kids program or something. Um, it's kind of old school effects that might have looked really cutting edge in the 70s, but now just have kind of a nostalgic charm. And the the great thing about it is that it's just so easy to produce the these good results. You don't have to take it off the camera or anything. You're just editing it on the fly as you go. And Jane and her
3: friends love it. You've been doing a podcast about apps uh, and games for kids, and it it seems like one of the really cool things about mobile apps specifically is that because the interfaces have to be so simple just because the screen is so small, um, but also because the resources are relatively powerful relative to you know, we can do on a phone what we could do on a computer just a few years ago, um, that what we get is little programs that do one little cool thing really, really well and simply.
1: That is true. And my older daughter, my 14-year-old daughter, finds all these amazing photography apps that she can make things and then post to Facebook. Like there's a really cool one called Cinemagram, that lets you shoot just a little loop of a scene, and then you can, with your finger, just quickly paint over the part that you want to uh, have the motion uh, continue, and then the rest of the scene is frozen. So it could be your friend standing in a busy crowd, and the entire crowd is frozen, but the friend is like maybe turning her head or something. And uh, it's pretty amazing what can be done, and especially you know for a ninety-nine cent app, this is something. Uh, in the in the late 90s if you were to have some kind of desktop program that could do this level of effect would have cost
3: hundreds of dollars well mark thank you so much for joining us on bullseye thanks a lot jesse this week mark Fraunfelder of boingboing.net and the week podcast recommends you check out the dictionary of modern proverbs in bookstores now and the iphone app video star It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you sign a professional baseball contract when you're 21, you usually know whether you've made it within four or five years. You're either busting into the big leagues or headed back home to finish college or maybe work in sales. Not so for R.A. Dickey. He played his first pro season at 22, and his last year with significant time in the majors was 2010 when he was 35. At one point, he realized he'd spent seven years in Oklahoma City, People joke that he should run for mayor, but he just wanted to get called up to the Rangers. Today, at 37, he's, if not quite a star, then at least a comfortable major leaguer with the New York Mets. In his 16 years of professional baseball, he found out he was a freak of nature with no ulnar collateral ligament. Had his career end and be resurrected by a trick pitch, the knuckleball, he nearly died, he thought about suicide, and he saved his marriage by coming to terms with a childhood filled with horrible traumas. And because he's now a knuckleballer, even after 16 years of pro baseball, he's just getting started. His new book is called Wherever I Wind Up, My Quest for Truth, Authenticity, and the Perfect Knuckleball. R.A., welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. No problem. Um, So let's first talk about uh, knuckleballs. Um, Where did you first learn to throw the knuckleball?
2: Well, I learned to throw the knuckleball first when I was a small boy. Um, My grandfather showed me the grip when I was probably eight or nine years old. And and from then on, I felt like it was, uh, you know, a, a pitch that I could throw to my to my buddy in the backyard and try to hit him in the knee with it. Uh, And from there, I just always kept playing around with it for years and years and years until uh, eventually it became a pretty good knuckleball. And I always kind of used it sporadically, even when I pitched conventionally. When I was not a full-time knuckleballer, I would still use the knuckleball uh, two or three times a game. Um, And so that's when I first learned, probably when I was eight or nine years old.
3: I think uh, if someone doesn't really follow baseball, I think they've probably got a reasonable idea of what a fastball is because it's a, you know, a ball that's fast and what a curveball is because it's a ball that curves. Um, but I, I think that someone who isn't a baseball fan might not even know what a knuckleball is. Sure. Um, maybe you could describe a, describe it a little bit because it really is – so distinctive from anything else that, uh, uh, you know, a, a high-level professional baseball pitcher
2: throws. Right. And in the history of the game, there have probably only been uh, 70 knuckleballers, I think 60 or 70 knuckleballers in the whole history of baseball. Presently, um, I'm the only one left. So to throw a knuckleball, um, it's, it's quite different because every other pitch that a conventional f- – Pitcher throws in his arsenal uh, is meant to impart a, a type of spin onto the baseball in order to manipulate the break or to keep it true and and straight. Um, but a knuckleball is antithetical to that, in that you're trying to you're trying to take spin completely off the baseball. Uh, I do it by by digging. You know, and the misnomer is it's called a knuckleball, and it's not called a knuckleball because you put your knuckles on the baseball. It's called a knuckleball because you take your fingernails. On your pointer finger and your middle finger, and you dig them into the leather of the baseball behind the seam, and you can see the knuckles sticking up, and that's why it is given the name a knuckleball. Is because those knuckles are visible when you're throwing the ball, sticking straight up off the baseball. Uh, but the but the uh, the misconception is that you throw you actually throw it with the knuckles. You, in actuality, you're throwing it with your fingernails. Um, when that works, what happens? Well, you know, I have thrown uh, knuckleballs that you can actually read the writing on the baseball as it comes in, <laughs> and and if that's happening, it's a very and to to use uh, Gary Sheffield, who was a um, an all a perennial all star for a long time from a multitude of teams. He said it looks spooky, and it can it can uh, it comes in there uh, darting uh, several different directions before it it gets to the catcher's mitt. So by the time I release the ball out of my hand and it travels to the catcher's mitt, it may break four different directions before it ever gets there because those seams, um, the ball has been thrown in a fashion where those seams are trying to, they're they're, they're uh, being manipulated by the, by the wind resistance against it created by the velocity of the baseball, as well as the humidity that's in the air. And those seams are Ba- really fighting against one an- one another to try to get to the front of the baseball and that creates a, a very chaotic movement and one that traditionally is hard to control which is why you don't see a lot of knuckleballers in the big leagues is because it's a real difficult pitch to to, to, to try to to try to hone so I, I mean it is you know and it's it's hard it's hard to do you know i hold the record for most wild pitches in an inning um and that comes with the territory when you throw a knuckleball Another key difference
3: between a knuckleball pitcher and most, at least, contemporary Major League Baseball pitchers is that most pitchers who step out onto the mound are throwing something like as hard as they can. I mean, they may be able to muscle up an extra 5% and get an extra 2 miles an hour on their fastball in certain situations. but for the most part, you know, when they when they step when they step onto the rubber, they're they're giving it their all. Um and when a knuckleball pitcher throws as hard as he can, he is in danger of losing the feel on on that pitch and thus he has to he has to throw very differently than he's been sort of trained to for most of his life.
2: Yeah, you know, it's uh I had to when I when I switched from being a conventional pitcher to being a full time knuckleball pitcher, I had to unlearn what I had learned as a conventional pitcher and relearn a mechanic that could produce a ball that doesn't spin. And half of the battle is doing exactly what you said. It's it's kinda surrendering to the fact that you're never gonna be who you were as a conventional pitcher. You're never going to be the guy that threw, throws in the mid nineties again, and um, the knuckleball works best when you're operating at about seventy five percent capacity. So I'm out there basically just trying to get a you know feel like I'm throwing a good game of catch with my with my with my buddy. You know I don't think of it in terms of oh God I got to throw this one you know super hard or this one you know it's it's much more organic. It's much more of a, a pitch that has to do with with grip and release point, not necessarily velocity. So uh, the thing that makes a knuckleball tough to hit for a hitter is that they cannot ever predict which way the ball is going to break. Uh, Whereas other pitches, they can read the spin of the baseball. They're so good, they can read the spin of the baseball and predict where it's going to be and get the barrel of the bat to the ball in that place. Well, with a knuckleball... You know, if I release it, if I don't know where it's going, you better believe the hitter doesn't know where it's going. So that's that's the beauty and the curse all in one in the pitch.
3: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, R.A. Dickey, is a pitcher for the New York Mets. His memoir is called Wherever I Wind Up, My Quest for Truth, Authenticity, and the Perfect Knuckleball. I want to talk to you a little bit about um, your life because you've had a, a really remarkable journey to get to the point where you're um a successful major leaguer now in in your late thirties um tell me a little bit about uh your folks as as you remember them uh
2: when they were uh when you were a kid you know i was i was um i was the a child that was born to a very young family uh, my mom had me she was pregnant with me when she was eighteen had me when she had just turned nineteen And, uh, my parents got, uh, married basically because my mom had become pregnant with me. And, um, that's a tough, that's a tough way to start a marriage. And as they grew and as I grew up, uh, my parents ended up getting a divorce. And from there I would split time as much as I could between my mom and my dad and go back and forth. But, um, and I had a sister as well, so we would, we would do the best we could, but it it makes for a a difficult, a difficult, um, and we came we came from a pretty modest modest uh means you know we were we were roughing it for a little while early on in my life and and when my when my dad moved out and and my mom was working a couple of jobs just to get by you know you, you have to be a latchkey kid and so that's how i kind of grew up do you think that one of the appeals
3: of Sports for you as a kid and as an adolescent, besides just that you were good at it, was that it is that sports are sort of fundamentally ordered, and in a way, you know, even though you you never know whether you are going to win or lose, they are predictable. You know the rules.
2: Yes, absolutely. You know the the two things I was kind of drawn to growing up, uh, were the military, things that were military and sports. And there's no doubt in my mind that there's this, there's something in all of us maybe uh, that craves structure, that that craves uh, kind of knowing, the knowing of what's going, the predictability of what's going to happen. If I do this, like cause and effect, if I do this, this is going to happen if I work this hard, I'm going to be a good athlete. You know, If I listen to orders, I'm not going to get yelled at, so on and so forth. So I, I, I for sure think, for me, that there was this inner craving for, for, for some stability and structure um, that was not necessarily my real world. And so sports became a real sanctuary for me in that regard.
3: You describe college recruiters, e- even when you were Um, young in high school, saying that, you know, that your defining characteristic as a pitcher was that you were a, that you were a fighter, that, you know, even though you weren't the hardest throwing kid or a kid with um, what they call an out pitch, which is to say a dominant pitch that you you could throw to strike people out, that you were uncowed by adversity
2: uh, yeah, you know, I think that was something that other people recognized in me that I kind of, uh, embraced as part of my identity as I grew up. And I think the foundations of that were, were laid from, uh, a childhood of, of having to deal with some of the adversities that I had to deal with. Uh, and I, I, th- I guess one of the good things that came out of that, uh, of, you know, my experiences. With sexual abuse and and uh, coming from a divorced family, I think you find ways to survive, and um, that's that's what I did. You know, I would I would I had this kind of never give up mentality simply because I couldn't afford to. I felt like um, I felt like I had to do it harder and better than everybody else if I wanted to survive, and so that's what I tried to do. It's bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorn. My guest
3: R.A. Dickey is a pitcher for the New York Mets. His memoir is called Wherever I Wind Up, My Quest for Truth, Authenticity, and the Perfect Knuckleball. It's about how he became a knuckleball pitcher and turned his life and career around. When you were in high school, you made an odd habit of um, sleeping in just a broad variety of places that weren't, your house
2: <laughs> that's a nice way to say it thank you
3: I, I wonder I wonder if you could describe them I mean s- some of them were sure. you know the homes of uh, friends and teammates sure um, but some of them <laughs> involved breaking and entering
2: yeah you know and, and I got I, gotta, I, I re- you know some of that I really, I really regret obviously but you know as a kid again speaking of those survival instincts you know I I I I grew up um, in a different place than I went to school. I grew up uh, in a place called Antioch, Tennessee, uh, Nashville, a suburb of Nashville, and I went to school in a, a more fluent place um, called Green Hills. and And my school was in Green Hills, but I grew up kind of on the other side of the track. So when I when I went to my all boys school at MBA, um, it was a little bit of ways away from where I lived. So. Oftentimes, I would get in the practice of of going to the library, the school library, and looking through the classifieds to find streets that were close to NBA that were for rent. And then I would kind of do a drive by and and find um, vacant houses. And I would always have a sleeping bag and pillow in my trunk of my car. And um, if I didn't sleep in the car or with friends, I would I would I'd find a, a vacant house. And usually, Nashville's a a nice southern. Uh, place. And most of the time people are real trusting. And, and there was always usually a key under a flower pot or a mat or somewhere. I rarely had to, to try to, you know, force my way in through a window or anything. I, I usually found a key, believe it or not. And and I would, I'd, uh, unroll the sleeping bag and sleep in those vacant houses. Sometimes they would have furniture in them. Sometimes they wouldn't. I usually would shy away with the ones with furniture in them because I felt like those were more likely to uh, invite people to come visit them or look at them. Uh, and I would, I would go there late and get up early. So no one ever saw me and I never got caught, but you know, that was a situation where I just, I didn't want to go home at the time I'd moved in with my father and we, we have stuff in common. We'd have a lot in common uh, during that time. And, and it was just a real lonely place. And I felt like at least there, it was a loneliness of my choosing. You know, I didn't, I wasn't reminded of how lonely I was. I could, I could at least control that. I could control where I slept. If I wanted to sleep in a vacant house, great. If I wanted to sleep in my car, that was up to me. Uh, but at least I could control it.
3: After a break, knuckleballer R.A. Dickey discusses the day that he was offered over $800,000 to sign his first pro contract. Then had that offer taken away. It's Bullseye for MaximumFund.org and PRI. Public Radio. International. Hey, gang, Max FunCon East is already half full. If you want to come join us and our friends at WNYC in the Poconos for a weekend of fun and adventure. Yes, that's right. I said adventure. It's not true, but I said it. Then go to MaxFunCon.com to get your tickets now before they're all gone. MaxFunCon.com. Look, I'm not going to tell you who we have booked, but I will say, that we have one person booked, a genuine legend who is the single Max FunCon guest about whom I am most excited ever. Max FunCon East is October 26th through 28th in the Poconos. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is R.A. Dickey, a pitcher for the New York Mets. He had a long, hard road to the major leagues, at one point, playing seven years in AAA Oklahoma City. He was personally lost and professionally flailing until he perfected his signature pitch, the knuckleball. You write in the book about going to your first Fellowship of Christian Athletes meetings when you're in high school. Um, and you chose a word that I was really struck by, which was that you— Found some, and were looking for some peace. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I, I you know, I, I don't think I don't think that's necessarily always. I mean, the th- thing that people are the the specific thing that people are looking for in their relationship with God. Um, I mean, it's something that many are, but. Um, sure, you know, for someone who, at that time in your life, you know, you were moving from place to place, and you know, trying to avoid your home, and and dealing with a lot of things by essentially either compartmentalizing or mm-hmm. fighting, you know, and being a great fighter, you know, in athletic competition. Um, peace is a very different thing. And it seems like much of your growing up as as an adult has been about trying to get to a place where you can have some peace.
2: Uh, I would agree. You know, I think, uh, you know, the, the use of that word... Um, kind of, kind of got its genesis for me, because I always felt like I was running from something, whether it was myself or the pain of a, a broken past or um, people who I didn't believe could identify with who I was. Or there were a lot of things I was always running from, and I always felt out of breath, uh, figuratively. You know, I was always gasping for air and you know that word peace just means to me that I was I found a place I could catch my breath and my faith has always been that place for me uh, thankfully you know and uh, and that's that's kind of where it originates uh, you know it's is just that that feeling of of being able to catch my breath um, and see things more clearly um, because like I said, it was, it was difficult always running, always looking over your shoulder, feeling like the next trauma is around the corner. And I was, you know, I got, and look, you know, I I, I kind of got into my faith in seventh grade, eighth grade. But um, it wasn't until I was 32 years old where I really felt like uh, I was given the gift of, of being free from a, from a real um uh, tough past
3: you were um you were a a very successful high school and college pitcher and were drafted in the first round in the middle of the first round which um normally means a very significant signing bonus for a baseball player this is after your junior year of college And you were offered a you were offered a bonus of about half a million dollars, if I remember correctly. It's like eight ten. Eight hundred and ten thousand? Oh wow. That's more than I remembered. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's no joke. So um tell me tell me about what happened after you um went to the texas rangers general manager's office and and sat down there with your agent and they told you what their offer was going to be yeah
2: well you know we had i had pitched in the 1996 olympic games we'd won the bronze medal and i was i had kind of uh we negotiated through the olympics and finally settled on the eight hundred and ten thousand dollars as a signing bonus i was the 18th pick overall in the in the june amateur draft that year and that was in 1996, and so we had agreed in principle to that figure. And I was going to fly down after the Olympics and sign my contract throughout the first pitch, meet Nolan Ryan. I was drafted by the Texas Rangers, and so I went down there and did my physical, which all first rounders really have to do. And uh, they had they put me through a test called the valgus stress test, and it's where you you put your arm in this apparatus and they apply some pressure from the back, and then they take a picture. An X-ray from the top, and I'd never been a hurt. I'd never been hurt a day in my life. Never missed a game. Never missed a practice. And so I had, you know, I had nothing to hide. And so I left that doctor's office thinking everything was okay. And when I got to to um, Doug Melvin's office, he called my agent inside without me, and asked me to wait up, wait out on the on the balcony of the office, and so I did. And my agent came and got me and I sat down across from Doug Melvin and he said we think there's something wrong with you. We think there's something wrong with your arm and we're we're retracting our offer. And instead of the $810,000 we're we don't know if we even want to sign you and we'd like for you to go get a second opinion. Now at that point, you know, I was I just I could hardly breathe. You know, I imagine winning the lottery and losing the ticket, you know. I mean, you just you, you don't know what's just happened. And so I left that meeting very distraught, not knowing what to do. I had a second opinion the next morning with Dr. James Andrews in Birmingham, Alabama, one of the most um, renowned orthopedic surgeons in in the country. And he did all the same tests and said, let's take an MRI. I think you're fine. And I'll tell the rangers that you're fine. But let's take an MRI just to make sure they're going to make you take one anyway. So when I did that, the results came back that... I didn't have the existence of an ulnar collateral ligament in my right elbow at all. I shouldn't be able to, to turn a key or uh, a doorknob without feeling some discomfort, according to the MRI that was discovered. And so he didn't believe it. He made me go down and take another MRI, and they called the chief radiologist out of his home to read it. And sure enough, no ulnar collateral ligament, which is the Tommy John ligament. And that ligament basically stabilizes the elbow joint so that it, it doesn't pop out of socket. I didn't have it. And so, obviously, the Rangers saw that as uh, damaged goods. I tried to argue that, hey, I'm not going to have to have surgery to replace it any time. I should get more money. But that that didn't really fly. And uh, they eventually offered me $75,000, take it or leave it. And I I prayed about it and talked to my wife about it now, who was my girlfriend at the time. And she said... um, you know, she encouraged me to take it and follow my dream, and so I did. I took it and and accepted a contract that was, what, $735,000 less than what I thought I was going to get.
3: You pitched in the minor leagues both as a starting pitcher and as a relief pitcher. And I wonder if you could describe to me what it feels like to – and maybe contrast to me what it feels like to pitch as a starting pitcher, what it feels like to come into the game as a
2: closer. Yeah, well, it's a, it's, a, it's a total different animal. You know, as a starter, you have four days of preparation before you take the mound again. As a closer, you've got to be ready every single day. You're in the bullpen, and mentally, you know, you've got to be engaged in the game uh, from the moment it starts to the moment it's it's over because you may be called upon to get an, a big out in a big situation every day. So as a, and as a starter, you, you take the ball and you throw 110, 100, 110 pitches every fifth day. And so you have those four days to get your body back ready to do it again. And those both present uh, different problem sets. you know. As a closer, you really don't have a lot of mental days off. As a starter, you have a few mental days off, but... You have to get yourself ready to go again and if that if you if you happen to have a bad outing as a starter you have to marinate in that for four days before you get the chance to go out there and and do better as a reliever you know you go out there you give up a home run you have a bad night you may get the ball again the next night Um, someone told me once as a reliever you have to have a short-term memory and a bulletproof confidence and that's that's very true as a reliever as a as a starter, you kind of have a few days to process through things, and and you know have a side session where you can work some things out, and you're not as much on call. Um, so those are the the ways that they contrast.
3: How does it feel to um, come into to come into the game as as a closer, and how do you pitch
2: differently? as a closer yeah, well you don't have as much margin for error as a closer i mean usually you're coming in the game it's either tied score or you're up by one or two runs and uh you you can't afford to walk guys you, you've got to make great pitches all the time as a starter you know you walk a guy in an inning or you give up a run in the first well you can throw four scoreless innings after that and have a pretty good start um but as a as a reliever everything is magnified as a closer uh, everything is magnified. Every, every walk that you have, every hit spatsman, every home run you give up because it's in the most crucial time of the game usually and, uh, or what people would perceive as the most crucial time in the later innings when the game is on the line. And so everything, the stage is huge. The stage is, is the most well-lit stage that you can be on because everybody sees uh, what happens because you know, you're know you in the most important parts of the game.
3: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, R.A. Dickey, is a pitcher for the New York Mets. His memoir is called Wherever I Wind Up, My Quest for Truth, Authenticity, and the Perfect Knuckleball. It's about how he became a knuckleball pitcher and turned his life and career around. You were in the minor leagues for a long time. <laughs> um, I was trying to think of a way to put that like really uh, uh, kindly. No, it's
2: all right. It is what it is, you know.
3: Yeah, I mean, you you were you were in the minor leagues as a conventional pitcher for longer than most. And I think the reason is that you were um that you were a, about as good as a minor league pitcher can be um without being good enough to be good enough to stick in the major leagues. Um when you were 27 and 26 and 28 years old um, and you were looking around the AAA clubhouse and seeing guys that were younger than you quitting um, how did you feel about staying a professional baseball player I mean Mm-hmm. you so much of your identity was tied up in being a fighter. Yeah. But you also by that time had a family and you know, you're obviously a smart and capable guy who who could get a real life job if if he needed to, you know. Well,
2: um you know, it's it's tough. Uh I think one of the things I was always constantly balancing was what is my responsibility to my family? Um, because you're you're not you're making, you know, 1300 $1, you know, maybe two thousand dollars a month for the months that you're playing, which are you know it's about five and a half months as a minor leaguer. You're only making that money for the months that you play. I mean, it can be a, a tough lifestyle, uh, as a minor leaguer, as a career minor leaguer, which I was for a lot of my career.
3: And besides that, your, your wife and your family have their lives compromised. I mean, oh, you, yeah. you write, yeah. you write in the book about your, your wife who, yeah. you know, graduated from college at the top of her class and essentially had to work retail and retail like jobs just because what other job can you get when you sort of breeze into town and who knows when you might leave?
2: Right. No, you're absolutely right. You know, I, I, I uh, at the beginning of my career, I asked her to put everything on hold and, you know, um, in order for me to 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 pursue what I was going to pursue as a, trying to get to the major leagues, and she worked everything from the limited retail to to uh, teaching uh, senior citizens water aerobics to uh, borders check borders books checkout. I mean, she did it all simply just to uh, follow me around in an effort to support me in what I wanted to do. And so, you know. And, and, and this is the, the the irony, not the irony, but the the beauty and the, and the poetry in it is that she never, I, I can, I don't know if I can ever remember her saying a resentful word because of it. Like she gladly did it, you know, and she, and, it, and that was one of the reasons to your first point, to your first question about seeing younger people quit. My wife wouldn't let me quit. Um, she didn't want me to have a singular regret, and if it weren't for her, uh, I would have never pursued it longer than I did. As long as I did, uh, she just she would not let me. And, and as much of a fighter and a survivor as I am, uh, you know, she really encouraged me to to hang in there. And a lot of times, I wanted to give it up. Even in the darkest places, uh, you know, she was sitting there saying, "You're going to regret it if you if you quit." And uh, so I kept going, uh, despite how hard it was.
3: You made it to the major league several times um, in your late 20s, Um, and you didn't distinguish yourself. Um, And I wonder what changed in your life that, that made you think that a different... Approach was necessary mm. because your life really inflected at 30 and 31 and
2: yeah well I think uh, a lot of it was just one of the things I felt like I was given as a gift as a human being was and we're all given different gifts in this world you know I think one of mine was um, at least athletically um A measure of of self awareness, and I uh, I knew that I was mediocre as a as a major league baseball player. Uh, Like you said, I I had done well as a minor leaguer, but when I got to the big leagues, there just I didn't have the equipment to be able to consistently perform well. I was very mediocre by my own admission, and I saw the writing on the wall. In two thousand and five, my velocity had dropped a little bit. And I just didn't have what I needed to consistently get big league hitters out. And that's when I I realized that if I wanted to keep going, I had to come up with something that I could, a weapon, if you will, that could get big league hitters out consistently. Oral Hirschhiser was my pitching coach at the time. He was a long-time Dodger great. and Buck Showalter was my manager for the Texas Rangers in 2005. And they confronted me and said, hey, we just you're not you're not getting it done, and I said, you know what, you're right. I'm not. They said, but we know you have a pretty good knuckleball. Why don't you try to go to the knuckleball full time, and we'll give you the latitude to be able to do that by sending you back to AAA and letting you try to try to figure it out. And so, because I was self aware and knew that I didn't have much to offer as a conventional pitcher anymore, I embraced that, went down to AAA, and began my journey as a knuckleballer.
3: I mean. What's crazy about that is that what's so remarkable about the knuckleball is that at the time that anyone else's physical skills are ending, diminishing to the point where, you know, unless they're starting out at the top of the pile— you know, all the all the marginal all the marginal guys at the age of thirty are starting to stop being marginal and start being whatever's one step below marginal. <laughs> you 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 sort of pick this side path where knuckleball is the only kind of is the only kind of professional baseball player where where thirty is young. I mean maybe left handed situational relief pitcher. Okay, yeah. But besides
2: that Yeah, that's a great point. <laughs>
3: like you you got to start over at 30 but on the other hand you have to start over
2: yeah you're right uh it is kind of the only the only niche that you can kind of fall into where you can have some real success in your your mid-30s to late 30s or you know 33 or 34 i really probably um i really started to get it uh when i was 33 or 34 years old for the first time you know i'd I I'd, I'd, I'd been a knuckleballer for about 2 years when I finally got some things started to click. Uh but yeah, it, you know, the knuckleball gives you that. It gives you that when you decide that you're going to embrace it and you have people who will support you in that. And that you have to have people who will support you. You know, the risk that to be a knuckleballer because basically you're saying when you become a knuckleballer what you are saying uh is I am not good enough and if I want to make it, I've got to do this or I'm going home. And that's a tough place to be. Uh, it's a pitch of desperation. Most people turn to the knuckleball because they can't do what they once did well anymore. Uh, they have to come up with something else. And uh, that's what I did. Uh, and thankfully, I had people who poured into me in a way uh, that really enabled me to kind of get the foundations I needed to learn it well. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne.
3: My guest R.A. Dickey is a starting pitcher for the New York Mets. His memoir is called Wherever I Wind Up, My Quest for Truth, Authenticity, and the Perfect Knuckleball. You know, it, it wasn't just committing yourself to the knuckleball that got you to the place where you could become a successful professional knuckleball pitcher. Um, your marriage... fell apart to the point where you and your wife were separated and living in different houses. Um, at at one point you tried to swim across the Missouri river on a dare that no one dared you to do.
2: (laughs) On a self dare.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's sort of like sort of like that scene in cool hand Luke about how many eggs he can yeah, eat only I remember this only thing. it's life threatening and also you almost died, yeah um, and it seems like the thing that you didn't have was the the ability to let go of the fighting and get yourself to
2: the peace, right. Right, no, that's a that's a, a good insight. I think, <clears throat> you know, I am I I am a man of uh, a myriad of mistakes, you know, uh, from everything from you know raging at my family after a bad outing, or or um, you know not doing relationship well with my friends, or you know an act of infidelity on my wife, or You know, I've made so many mistakes, so many, and I'll continue to make mistakes. Uh, You know, my decision-making has not always been sound, that's for sure. Uh, But I think one of the things that I have realized uh, is that, you know, the journey is never over. Uh, You know, you never get to the place where you've arrived. I certainly have not and will not, but because I do life differently than I've, I've done it in the past through a lot of help, whether it's been a, uh, some of my close friends, my wife, a therapist, you know, I haven't gotten a chance to do life differently. Uh, and I'm trying to embrace that. And that's where some of the peace comes in. You know, I think to speak directly to your point, uh, there was an element of my life that I, I, uh, A lot of elements of my life, I would say, that I really worked hard to control. And once I learned uh, what it was like to surrender, uh, the peace started to come. More peace started to come. Uh, Realizing that I, I wasn't good enough, you know, I wasn't, I couldn't be perfect enough, and that, and let that be okay. Like surrender that. You know, I was going to make mistakes as a husband, as a father, as a pitcher, as a friend. It was okay, you know, like surrendering that and not trying to control it uh, really did a lot for for me finding some peace.
3: It seems like that's the that's in a lot of ways the same as throwing the knuckleball, this pitch where you almost have to surrender to it, you know you have to throw it thousands and thousands and thousands of times, and you can't control it. you can only kind of. Put it out there. It's a butterfly, not a bullet, as I I, yeah. I think it was Charlie Huff that said that yeah. one. Yeah.
2: Um, no, that's that's so true. I, I think for me, and one of the things I talk about in, in my book is, you know, the parallel. I mean, my transcendence as a knuckleball pitcher in the major leagues directly coincided with my with my growth as a human being, and learning what it was like to surrender and learning what it was like to trust. You know being a a person who came from the place I came from with the things that had happened in my past, it was difficult to trust. I had to learn to trust again and once i once I learned to trust a little bit, once I learned to surrender and once I learned to tell the truth more and and be open with who I really was, regardless of what people may think, and all those things simultaneously occurred along the lines of me risking becoming a knuckleballer and learning what it was like. Uh, To do that well,
3: I have one last thing to ask you about Ra. And I don't know if you know this, but you've become a sort of hero god to a certain set of baseball nerds. Um, When and it happened when they found out that you had started naming your bats after uh, fantasy characters and (laughs) elements from legendary fantasy tales. Um, I know you had a bat named after a character from Beowulf. Yeah, um, you had a bat named after uh, Sword from The Hobbit. Um, have you have you maintained this practice? <laughs> well, perhaps you could clue us into your current bats' names.
2: Sure, you know that. That's uh, I just like to have fun with it. You know, if if the bats are symbolic of swords, you know. Uh, then Why not name them, you know? Why not give them their own personality? So oftentimes, for instance, uh, you know, Harunting is still around uh, from Beowulf. Oh,
3: excellent. That's the that's the Beowulf sword. Yeah, that's bat. the Beowulf
2: sword. He's still around. And so I'll tell the bat boy, go get me Harunting. Because on the end, on the knobs, <laughs> on the knobs, everybody uh, everybody writes their number. Well, in lieu of my number, uh, I have the name of my bat. And so <laughs> r- Harunting and Sting and... I have a few others. Um, but those are my, my two go-to bats. I'll go get those guys and, 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 and go up to the plate with those guys. But, yeah, you know, it's just something that, you know, keeps me engaged and, and I, I like doing.
3: <laughs> um, I mean, I, I'm i not sure how to ask this, R.A. <laughs> I mean, look, I'm on board for this. There's no doubt about that. What I'm wondering is, I guess, what other professional baseball players think about the fact that you have named your bats after Swords from Beowulf.
2: Oh, I don't know. And, you know, I'm thankful I'm at the place where I'm I'm kind of apathetic to it, you know? (laughs) I think there was a time when I would have cared, but right now I I just don't.
3: Well, um, R.A., I I sure appreciate you being on the show. Thank you so much for uh, uh, sharing your time with us.
2: No, I appreciate the dialogue. It's been fun. Thanks. R.A. Dickey's new book is
3: called Wherever I Wind Up, My Quest for Truth, Authenticity, and the Perfect Knuckleball. After a break, we'll travel back to the streets of early 1960s San Francisco, where James Coyle and Mal Sharp convince a Navy man to rob a bank. All, as they put it, in the interests of humor. And I'll tell you about a radio show that you really ought to check out. No, not this one. Another one. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International.
0: Production of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is supported in part by the menswear blog Put This On. Presenting the Put This On Gentlemen's Association. Members receive a handmade pocket handkerchief in the mail every 60 days. More information at PutThisOn.com. And by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at Ask.Metafilter.com.
3: Bullseyes on Twitter. Follow us at Twitter.com slash Bullseye. In the early 1960s, James P. Coyle and Mal Sharp roamed the streets of San Francisco, microphone in hand, roping strangers into bizarre schemes and surreal stunts. Originally recorded for KGO Radio and Warner Brothers Records, their archives have been preserved and compiled into a recent box set. These two men are imposters. On this actual archival recording, Coyle and Sharp approach a military man near Union Square in San Francisco.
4: We've just stopped a gentleman, a young man who's in the Navy. Could we have your name, please? Lewis. Lewis, I'd like you to meet James P. Coyle. Glad,
5: Glad to, me. to meet you. Glad, Glad, to you. Me Glad to meet
4: you. Now, Lewis, Mr. Coyle's going to tell you very briefly about a film he's working on here in the city, and uh, after he finishes, if you want to discuss any aspect of uh, it. I'd like feel to it. I really would. I really okay, like fine. To. Mr. Coyle, would you tell Lewis about the film?
5: Very good. The name of the film is Daring But Dead. The idea is very simply... Uh, it centers around a bank robbery, which takes place in a city. We hope to approach it in a unique way, and we're actually going to film it in a bank. Do you understand the nature of it?
6: Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I come from
5: Philadelphia. I'd like, to, I'd like to know it. I really would. I right, mean, right. Everybody in the bank will be actors. Uh, but we're going to try and get the main role, in other words, the protagonist of this film. We're going to use a person without dramatic background. Would you yourself be interested in... Uh, Giving a crack at that role. There's no money involved, but there's a possibility for fame. Yes, I really would. I mean, I think it would be a good film. I really do. I honestly do. The idea is you are to uh, go in the bank, ask for $11,000. You can use some type of a weapon or not. And Uh, we are actually, uh, I've chosen Mr. Sharp from the radio station and myself, are playing two of the other roles in the film. We'll be sitting out in a car outside the bank. Would you be willing to give it a try? I would be because I'm a gunner's man in the Navy, and I know I
6: could do it. I mean, I just walk in, I'd hold it up. Yeah. Because uh, I mean, uh, the man that's never committed a crime before is the one that can do it. Right. That's exactly. true. I could do it. I'm. I can get hold of a machine gun. I can get hold of any kind of weapon you want.
5: Would you be willing? We're doing some filming this afternoon. Would you be willing to try it? Yes, I would. Fine. We'll go up to a bank here. Uh. Would you be able to get a hold of a weapon this afternoon? Yeah, I would. You won't see the
4: cameras. We'll just go in, and it'll look like a regular bank robbery. No cameras, nothing. That's
1: right.
5: I would.
6: I would. I'd go in there. And
4: no. you'd come out with the money and meet that's us in the right, car? That's right. All right, let's go.
6: Okay, fine. What's that's wrong? a good plan. What do you mean? What's wrong? What, are you going to go with us? Yeah, I'll go with you. What do you mean? Go? What with are you, you? going to do? I'd hold up a bank. Okay, come right. let's go. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Come on. Come on. What do you mean Come on. We're gonna you do would, it now. you agreed to hold the bank up, right? What's wrong? What do you mean, what's wrong? You guys actually want to hold up a bank right now? Don't right. You? I know you do. You guys got a gun? No, no.
4: You were gonna have the gun. You would be the guy who'd go in the bank.
6: What kind of guys are you? We're just
4: out to make a buck, and if we can use a guy that's got no criminal you really experience. Are,
6: huh? Yeah. guys are all right. Which bank are you not yet?
5: The bank right down on the corner.
6: You guys just walk in there. Huh,
5: you the walk in. in. Me. You walk in. We wait outside in the car. You guys got a good scheme here. You know, we've discussed it with you pretty openly. You know the score. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We get you to go in the bank. You take the risk. We sit out in the car. We get the money. If you're caught, you know you don't even know who we are. So we have no past association with you. That's
6: right. See, if I get shot by the car but you guys don't know nothing. Yeah, right. right. We a, just drive right. off. You're I'm
5: lying a, there. In the, I'm a stoolie, right? You're a pigeon. Yeah, yeah, you're a pigeon. Yeah, yeah.
4: You're lying on the steps of the bank, riddled yeah. with bullets, and we're driving across the bridge.
6: Yeah, I'd want one of you guys with me. Where? In the bank. Can we explain something to you? Yeah,
5: yeah. You won't be angry with us? No, no. This is all in the interest of humor.
6: Let me say one thing. Yeah, go right in. You two guys with a scheme like that, just stopping a guy on the street with a policeman right next to me,
3: you could actually pull off a job like that. You You could. Three men. I'm serious. That was a recording from the archive of James P. Coyle and Mal Sharp. Their recent box set, These Two Men Are Imposters, is available at CoyleandSharp.com or in our store, MaxFunStore.com. You can also hear Coil and Sharp recordings on our website, MaximumFun.org. Just look for the Coil and Sharp podcast. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Every week, we close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's the Outshot. David Foster Wallace wrote an essay for The Atlantic called Host. It was a profile of an AM talk show host named John Ziegler. Really, though, it was a profile of talk radio. What Wallace understood and wrote about was that talk radio isn't really about ideas, it's about feelings. The call-in show host's stock and trade is the incitement of emotion, rage, indignance, once in a while, pity or sympathy. The talk show host uses his direct and intimate line to the listener, the special quality of radio, to stir the pot, to turn the thermostat up and up and up so that you'll call in or at least not turn the dial. When you're a host like me, you get really in tune to that. I think that's part of why my public radio colleagues Terry Gross and Ira Glass are so into Howard Stern. My favorite master of that emotional thermostat, and yes, I'm going to use my radio show to recommend someone else's, is a guy named Tom Sharpling. What I love about Tom is that he's so fantastic at the emotional dramatics of the host. But at the same time, he's fantastic at satirizing them, too. And somehow his satire is more emotionally powerful than the source material, the stuff he's satirizing. It's quite a trick. Sharpling hosts a show called The Best Show on WFMU on the legendary Freeform station out of Jersey City, New Jersey. Once a week, he presides over what he calls three hours of mirth, music, and mayhem. (music) It used to be all music, back when he started it, until a friend of his, John Worcester, had the idea to call in as the author of a fake rock book called Rock, Rot, and Rule. Worster is a real-life rocker. He's the drummer for the band Superchunk, among others. The idea was that this made-up author split all music into three categories, rock, rot, and rule, almost completely arbitrarily, I should say which, of course, enraged the music-loving WFMU audience. Sharpling took calls as Worcester explained that Puff Daddy rules and that Bowie and Neil Young rot because they've made too many changes.
4: WFMU, you're
5: on the air with Ronald Thomas Clothel.
1: Yeah, I'm just very confused
3: about the concept of this book. Can you just, like, I get this book, I open it up, and there's paragraphs describing the bands and the rationale for why they rock. Like, what, you know, are there chapped? I mean, how is this, what's the deal? It's columns. It's columns? It's columns, yeah.
1: Okay. In other words, you just have a band name and then just one of the three words, rock, rot, or rule?
2: Exactly.
3: And that's it?
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, some photos, too. And...
3: Why would somebody buy this book again? Just Pardon me? What was the reason why someone would buy this? The ultimate argument, Settler. The tape of the hour-long segment became a cult phenomenon, and eventually, Worcester started calling into the show as a new character every week. And along the way, what was once a music show became a talk show. Worcester still calls in once a week, providing an unbilled glimpse into a fictional world the show's created called New Bridge, New Jersey. And all of this stuff is wonderful. What's magical to me, though, is the rest of the show, which in a lot of ways is like a regular call-in radio show. Topics, callers, music breaks. But always with the stakes a little higher than normal and the tone a little crazier than normal, Tom Sharpling cycles through emotions on the show. Sometimes he's openly despondent on the air, threatening to shut the show down. What's that?
1: There are probably things you could do to get it out of your head.
5: Yeah. Like move on from this show. Other stuff. I got other things in front of me. I got other opportunities. I don't need to be here. You know what? I could be sitting at home coloring in a coloring book.
3: If I wanted to. Sometimes he's belligerent, battering collars. This is so unfunny.
6: You're so unfunny. Your show's... Your shoes, crap! Why don't you just you hang up on people and then you bash them for twenty minutes? What do I do? You <laughs> hang.
3: <laughs> oh, that will never ever get old. Sometimes he's sweet. Children call in, actual children, eight, ten year olds, and he mentors them live on the air. What's your favorite movie, Ben?
0: Dazed and confused. What?
6: What's going on there in
4: that
0: house? You gotta house? love stoner comedy. What's that? You gotta love stoner comedy.
5: No, I gotta. You don't. You should be watching th- things like uh, you, sh- you 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 should be watching like uh, like Apple Dumpling Gang and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, right?
0: Uh, Family know. Fair.
3: Once in a while, someone will call in to a talk segment to request a terrible song. Tom asks them to introduce it. Give it a big, fat ramp-up. And then he drops the needle on this jam by Neil Diamond. Pie, pie,
1: scoop,
3: Sharpling calls for vendettas. He carangs imagined enemies. He talks about his problems with a recording of a scratchy, skipping record. And yet, somehow, through it all, it is abundantly clear that while all of it is a put on, it's also all real. He is what he claims to be Kid Jersey, the voice of the disenfranchised, a genuine sweetheart. On the best show, Sharpling takes us on the emotional roller coaster of the talk show, knowingly. He's mocking the form as he practices it. But he isn't distant from it. He's never arch. The mockery is more genuine than the hucksters that Tom's mocking. The game of the best show is usually trying to figure out who the real Tom is. And somehow trying to guess who the real Tom is just brings you closer to the speaker, leaning into your radio, which is, after all, the whole goal of this thing that we do. That's it for Bullseye this week. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones, our producer, Julia Smith. Nick White is our editor. Our intern is Justin Morissette. Thanks to Roger Dominguez at Uptempo Studios for engineering the Miami side of our interview with R.A. Dickey. Our theme music is Huddle Formation by The Go Team, thanks to The Go Team and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use that. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org, on Twitter, Bullseye or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. And remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-up.
0: Production of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is supported in part by the menswear blog Put This On, presenting the Put This On Gentlemen's Association. Members receive a handmade pocket handkerchief in the mail every 60 days. More information at PutThisOn.com. And by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com.
3: Support for this program comes from this station and Public Radio International stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.